Hello and welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. My name's Darren and I'm here with Faith. Hi. Pastor Faith. And we will get to the sermon in just a little bit, but we wanted to make some time and space to talk about something special that we've been having on Sundays. And it's a new song that Pastor Faith, you and your husband, Josh, wrote, and we've shared it with our community. Tell us a little bit about it. What's the name of it? Yeah. And where did it come from? Yeah, so it's called We Need You. Um, and I, I'm going to root this in 1 Corinthians 2 when Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Um, the, the first thing that was written for this song was the beginning of that bridge section that says, We don't need better plans. We don't need clever thoughts. We need your Spirit, O oh God. We don't want the wisdom of man. We want we want a display of God's power, which is really what the world needs. They don't need to see a show, or even in the area of worship, they don't need to hear good music. We need to see a display of the power of God. So it came from that heart cry. And then the beginning of the song kind of sets up this space where we invite Holy Spirit, we open our hearts, we clear out all the distractions, the things that get in the way and then just simply cry out for more of Him. And it's this this longing to be a, a space where the Spirit would rest mm-hmm. as a community. Yeah, I love that. That's such a the heart and core value of Garden Church. Exactly. Knowing that the Spirit is present, like He's welcome to the party and we get to celebrate. And I so appreciate the beauty and creativity that you've been cultivating, not only with worship, but just something that we can invite the rest of our community into. And, and it's so cool when, when uh, in the recording of this song, it's the first time that we shared it. And it's like people have been singing it for weeks. <laughs> and it was just such a cool thing to experience. And so we're so happy for those of you that have experienced that with us on a Sunday morning. And we want to see just more original songs being birthed from this place um, that you're talking about, just being saturated in the Holy Spirit. So we are welcoming you to stick around after the sermon where you can hear a live recording of the song, We Need You, and I hope it blesses your heart. Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. We're in a series called Witness, Becoming a Redemptive Presence, and we are looking at ways that we can engage in culture as the church. Um, <clears throat> this is the third week of a, uh, of a series that's going to take us through, through the new year. And we're trying to engage in topics that we can discuss that help us navigate the, the places that we live in today. Um, so we started our series redefining the word church. If you're new to church, you need to know that church is not a building. It's not an event. It's not something that you can just attend or show up to or, or leave or even shop. If you follow Jesus, a church is who you are. Church is the body of Christ. It's the, the witnesses. It's um, the Old Testament word for church is a witnessing body. It's those that have experienced the liberation and power of God and gather in community as a testimony of that reality of God. You with me? And so we talk about becoming this kind of church that can engage in culture, knowing that culture is moving and bending us in a different direction, um, alternative to that of the kingdom of God and the ways of Jesus. It bends us towards self-focus and narcissism 
towards um, image focus. It bends us towards materialism and consumerism and um, and all sorts of unhealth of busyness and defining ourselves by what we have. And um, so we're looking at how do we engage in our culture knowing that this is what we're confronted with. Um, So last week I I gave you a lens and as I'm teaching the next several weeks, I'm trying to present to you a new way of looking at the world, um, one from the scriptures, but also one that you can draw from the scriptures. So last week we looked at how uh, when you've witnessed your own liberation, you can't help but spread that liberation everywhere else you go. And how when you've experienced God's love or when you experience any kind of freedom, it in some ways is contagious, like donuts in a staff meeting. Um, or like AA, when you've experienced any sobriety in your life and bro- break from addiction, the, the bonds of addiction, um, AA, what they do is they invite you to start sponsoring others. So you help liberate others from their addiction. And when you help liberate others from their addiction, it somehow keeps your liberation alive. So this idea of liberation going where it should be going, that's part of what it means to be a follower. The second thing is that everything is connected to everything else. We talked about the clothing industry. Everyone here is wearing clothes again. Great job for dressing yourselves. Um, <clears throat> But we all have clothes. And what I, what I presented last week was that the, the clothing industry, the fashion industry, is a $3 trillion company or organization or, uh, or uh, industry, excuse me, where um, there uh, are over 1 billion people working in the fashion industry today. It's a, um, the, the highest number of labor uh, in the world. Um, one out of six humans alive are employed by the fashion industry. Um, and 85% of those people are women making $3 or less. Um, and what we see is through the movie True Cost, we see uh, the oppression and exploitation of the most vulnerable and least of these around the world. And it's all connected to our consumption of material goods like clothing. And so what do we do with that knowledge and knowing that we're all participating in an industry that is exploiting and uh, making the least of these slaves around the world? That's what we confronted last week. And then we, we had a documentary uh, screening on Thursday. A lot of you came to that. I appreciate that. But if you want more information about that, there'll be some resources on the website. But we then talked about, in view of that, what do we do? And we, we discussed this idea that you have more power than you could ever imagine. You have more power than you think you have. Every decision you make, every habit you form, every uh, purchase you buy, purchase, or everything that you, every word that you speak has the power to create new worlds. So we're, we're kind of showing you, uh, inviting you to see the world through a different way. Does that make sense? Um, so today, <clears throat> in view of what we've been talking about, I realized I needed to kind of focus in on something that is, is very, for me, there's a lot of assumption attached to it. Um, in all of what we teach, what you'll see us teach throughout the garden is uh, we'll talk about the Bible. We'll use the Bible. We'll speak about the Bible authoritatively. We'll preach through the Bible. And for me, I realize that um, there's a lot of things underlining our preaching and all that has to do with my view of the scripture and our view of the scripture as a church. So I wanted to, to talk about um, Uh, some of the things that we need to discuss when it comes to the scriptures today. So I feel like as we, as we enter into the world as witnesses, as we begin to think about being a redemptive presence in the world, I think we need, we need to look at scripture and see the Bible for really what it is. Um, For many of us, the Bible is seen as archaic, um, uh, barbaric, misogynistic, out of date, out of, out of kind of missing the time that we're in. 
Um, and so, especially in the world, as you talk about scriptures and you say, well, the Bible says, um, it, you, you might be misunderstanding what the Bible means. So this morning, I just thought I would present a case for you um, or a case to you about the scriptures. So um, I'm gonna do this this morning. I'm gonna, I'm gonna intro what the Bible is. I'm just gonna give you just a summary about what the Bible is so that we all are on the same page. And then I wanna demonstrate this point. And this is the point that the Bible, I wanna show you that the Bible is progressive, subversive, redemptive, um, and redemptive. It's a library of books anchored in historical realities, and it's pulling culture and society forward. So stay with me. I know that's heady, um, uh, but I think we can get it. It's, it's, there are three things I want to show you. It's progressive and subversive and redemptive. It's a library of books because it's, it's, it's a collection of books, and um, it's, it's anchored in historical reality, and it's pulling culture and society forward into a better future. Cool? So I'm going to show that. And then we're going to talk about women and tribes and political affiliation. Does that sound good? <clears throat> I can't sit now. I realize <clears throat> I'm ready to go. Uh, Bible and culture today. So every single year, the Bible is the world's best-selling book. It's the number one best-selling book in human history. And it recently made... A, a different kind of list, a less coveted list than the best-selling book of all time. The American Library Association's top 10 most challenged books of 2015. This, this list is for the, the top books that are frequently requested to be removed from public libra libraries. So this book, the Bible, is regularly contested in public spaces for lots of reasons. But why or what is it about the Bible that's so threatening? that it would make the top 10 most threatening books or most requested books to leave public libraries? Why could owning one in Stalin's Russia send you to the gulag? Or why owning one today in North Korea would you be punished by death? What's so threatening about this book? Well, there's lots. And Eric Metaxas wrote this in USA Today. He said, words and ideas have power. And the words and ideas in the Bible have so much power that a rather recent History Channel documentary uh, titled 101 Objects That Changed the World said the single thing that changed the world more than anything else was the Bible. That's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing that there's uh, evidence and testimony of what we know to be true outside of what we know to be true. So here's the Bible. I want to give us some framework, and then we're going we're gonna to dive into my point. And I, I want you to just, stay, I, I promise it will be engaging. If, you, if you're, just stay with me the first few minutes, and then we're going we're gonna to dive into some fun text uh, together. So the Bible first is the Word of God. The Bible is the Word of God. It's the inspired Word of God. It's God-breathed. This is all the stuff that we know, seen in the Scriptures. The Bible contains 66 separate books written in 40, by 40 different authors spanning 1,500 years of time, um, working from the Old Testament is from the beginning of time to 450 BC, and then we get to the New Testament, and it's 2,000 years ago, starting with Jesus' life, uh, birth and life and his death and his resurrection, moving into the first few years of the church. Um, and and uh, the Bible is a compilation of divinely inspired writings that share one continuous 
flow or story from Genesis to Revelation. If you've never read it, there is really one story being told. And it's been canonized by uh, early on, the first kind of process to, to recognize that these are divinely inspired writings was around 170 AD. And there are a bunch of councils throughout history in 363 and 393 and 397 that kind of officially made the Bible that we have the Bible that we have. So it was rooted in history, which let me just say real quick, um, I'm passionate about the Bible, not because I'm a preacher. Um, I'm passionate about the Bible because when I left the faith in college, I went to UCSB, I used to use the, the, the discrepancies in the text and the Old Testament. Uh, I used to argue against Christians using the Bible, confronting what I knew to be true for most Christians, that most people don't actually read the Bible. Most people don't know what the Bible says. And when I would confront them with passages, they wouldn't have a response. And eventually I led lots of people away from the faith. And then I came back to faith. And on my journey back to faith, I discovered the integrity and the historical um, anchoring that the Bible has and how profound it is. And I learned to read the Bible in a different way. And, and this is what I'm presenting. So it's coming from a place of passion. Um, but, but what I need you to know as we talk about the Bible, it is rooted in history which is so important because there are lots of religions in the world that are not rooted in history that do have books other than the Bible. It has one guy reads, the, 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 reads through a spectacles into a top hat translating the book of, of Mormon. Literally, that's how it's, it's read. Or, or the, the Quran is one guy in a cave writing in another place the book of the Quran. But our Bible is rooted over 1,500 years with lots of different people, people telling one continuous story. It's amazing. It's unlike anything else. And textual critics, those who study ancient documents, have argued that there is nothing like the New Testament in any historical literature out there. Nothing as compelling as the New Testament for how it was preserved throughout time. So historically, we can make a case for the, the accuracy of the scripture and what it is, but I'm not going there today. But what I do wanna say, so it's inspired word of God. Um, here's what I wanna say is this, this is so important for me, for you to know, and this is probably the most profound thing you can walk away with today. The Bible was written by real people in real places and real time in real human language. Real people, real places, in real time, in real human language. So that, why is that important? Because all of the Bible is occasional literature, meaning when it was written, it was written for a specific purpose to a specific group of people in a specific set of time with a lot of things going on in that context. Does that make sense? So when we talk about the Bible, when we talk about how we teach the Bible, how we preach the Bible, how we interpret the Bible, we need to, we need to get it right and what I mean by getting it right is we need to pay attention to its original purpose when it was written for us to apply it today. This is what we do on Sundays when we teach the context of scripture. Because what you need to know is that everyone who reads the Bible interprets it. Everyone who reads the Bible doesn't just do what it's, if you read the Bible, you don't just do what it says, you interpret what it means. That's, that's called uh, hermeneutics, interpretation. Let me prove a point real quick, okay? Go to Romans 16. Go to the book of Romans. It's in the New Testament. If you have a phone, open it up. Um, if you have a Bible, I wanna hear those pages. You can be proud that you're turning pages. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have some Bibles here and we'd love to give you a Bible. If you don't have one, take one as a gift. Romans 16, 16, 16 says, greet one another with a holy kiss. And none of you gave me a kiss except for Pam. Pam is here. Pam, 
Let me get some love. I got some love from Pam. Um, she's a good friend of mine. She kissed me on the cheek and, and our sound AV Seth was like, hey, she kissed you. You gotta remember that. I'm like, yeah, I did. But no one else greeted me with a holy kiss. Either Pam's the only one who got it right or you haven't read this passage before. Okay, I'll give you a break. Or you've read this passage and this command to the church, but somewhere along the lines of, of taking what it says you've interpreted it to mean something about first century context and culture. You with me? So you just made an interpretation. You just said this command was for a specific place, specific time. It's cultural context to greet each other with a holy kiss. Paul might be saying something like, give each other a hug or a handshake or a pound or whatever it is that you said. That's, but when you do that, you interpret And so everyone's doing this all the time in the scripture. The difference is we need to be sure that we are consistent with what we apply universally to the church across the board throughout time in history and what we apply to context in the first century or the ancient Near Eastern context. Does that make sense? So we have to be consistent. And when you aren't consistent, you do a lot of damage. We do a lot of damage. This is just a side note. I'll give it to you, 1115, because you're my favorite, my, my favorite. If you read in Timothy, there's this passage about women not having authority over a man or teaching a man, but they learn in full submission and quietness. You've heard, how many of you read this passage? And how many of you know that that has been used to silence women across the church universally? Now, in the same text, one verse before, it literally says, I want all men to raise their hands without grumbling with prayer. And none of you, when we prayed, men raised your hands. So somehow within two verses, people will take that and say, that's cultural. That's a specific thing in Ephesus that Paul was writing for Timothy, a specific thing. But then they'll jump two verses later and say, this is translocal, transcultural to everyone else. And that's not fair. Does that make sense? Okay, I didn't lose you on that quick little like, I'm so passionate about that one. I always go, whenever I confront pastors on that, I'm like, how come you didn't raise your hands when you prayed? All I'm saying is that whenever we make the jump to say this is the interpretation we have, let us be consistent from, generation, gen, gen, from Genesis to Revelation on, Revelation on how we read the scripture. We can apply the same technique, it's called exegesis, to interpreting the meaning. What I mean is we need to apply historical context cultural context, literary context. We need to apply all of that to anchor ourselves in the interpretation that the author intended. What I mean by that is at the garden, we believe the best way to interpret the Bible is to allow the author's intent to be the anchor of our interpretation. In other words, the Bible can never mean what it never meant. Can I get amens? Am I preaching to, how many of us have been in situations where someone says, well, the Bible says so. And it it makes, it diminishes us. Just so you know, when somebody says the Bible says so, you should just say, well, what you're saying actually is, I think the Bible means this. Because the Bible doesn't say it, they're interpreting the meaning and applying it. That's, that's just so you know. Okay, are we good on this? We're just, this is all like technical preacher stuff, but I wanted all of you to know this because it, I've realized that, the, that if we're gonna be witnesses in the world, we, the, the, the authority of scripture is, is we, can't, we can't lower the authority of scripture. We have to elevate it, especially now. And how do we elevate it? I think we have to look at it um, through this lens. 
And so that's all I'm trying to do is give you a lens that you can see. What do I mean by lens? I don't want you to look at the world and see the Bible and then try to apply it. I want you to look at the Bible, look like a pair of glasses. You, you see the world through a biblical lens. That you see the way that this whole thing is functioning over here is off and the scriptures teach this and this is why it's moving in this direction. I wanna show you that this morning and how you can apply this. So my point, the Bible is progressive. It's subversive and it's redemptive. It's a library of books. I've already shown you. It's a collection of books that are anchored in history, historical realities. But here's the thing. It's pulling society and culture into a better future. It's pulling us into a better future. Let me show you this. So if you have a Bible, go to Deuteronomy chapter 21. And we're gonna talk about women and spoils of war. Sound good? Um, so Deuteronomy 21. This is, I love this passage. If you're, this is just one of those passages where you're like, yes, this is the inspired word of God. This is God breathed. Deuteronomy 21, verse 10. Mine says, the chapter break, it says marrying a captive woman. Let's just read this. Um, it says, when you go to war against your enemies and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands and you take captives, if you notice among the captives a beautiful woman and are attracted to her, you may take her as your wife. Bring her into your home, have her shave her head, trim her nails and put aside clothes she was wearing when she was captured. After she has lived in your house and mourned her father and mother, thank God for a full month. Just, it's gotta be a full month. Then you may go to her. It's a biblical way of saying something I'm implying. You may go to her and be her husband and she shall be your wife. So it's a physical thing here. And this is also physical, verse 14. If you're not pleased with her in what you just did in chapter, verse 13, let her go wherever she wishes. You must not sell her or treat her as a slave since you have dishonored her. The word of the Lord. So when people say, hey, the Bible is distant, behind the times, barbaric, archaic, misogynistic, yes, it is. It absolutely is. Look, what do you do with Deuteronomy 21? That is absolutely archaic and primitive and barbaric. It looks like it's on Game of Thrones or something. It's absolutely horrible. <laughs> How many of you read this passage or heard it and you felt sick to your stomach? You wanted to gag. Now, imagine if you heard a pastor trying to in, apply this literally today. Literally. Let's, let's literally think about this being applied literally, real quick. Um, where they take this, and so people will tell me all the time, I'll get emails, hey, do you interpret the Bible literally? Um, what do you mean by literally? I mean, because literal language is a new modernistic concept. The, okay, let me explain this. So modernism has applied literal language to the Bible, which is why we have these apologetics conferences trying to argue that the earth is 6,000 years old because they're applying Western scientific reason over a document that's 3,500 years old and it's a poem, not scientific, scientific blueprint for how many days the earth is old or whatever it is. That's, that's, you're, you're not interpreting it the way it was intended to be interpreted. So literal language is helpful for Google, for building hospitals, for driving cars, for going to mechanic. You don't go to a mechanic and, and he doesn't say, when you go to him, say, uh, you say, what's wrong with my car? He doesn't say, well, your car's acting grumpy today. The carburetor is feeling a, a bit sad. 
you, you need literal language for the mechanic, right? To build hospitals. But when you're talking about soul, you're talking about deeper meaning, deeper truth, the, the level of the heart, joy. When you're talking about the things that are deeper and really true, you don't use technical language. Language. How many of you have had a child? You've witnessed the birth of your child and you send a text message or an announcement to your friends and family. It doesn't say, um, hey, uh, Darren and Alex, we're, uh, we are very excited. Um, joy quota was met for the month. We're on a 9.7 for joy. Our boy was X pounds. No, you talk, when you tell the story of your child's birth, you use this trans, transcendent language of experience. It feels like life is starting all over again. Is life literally starting all over again for you? No. When you say to, to, about your wife, when I, when I met my wife, I said, she's hot. Is she literally hot? No, she doesn't have a fever. <laughs> On the deeper truths, you, you don't use literal language to argue or to communicate the deeper truth. Literal language is not enough language to communicate the truth of the heart. Use poem-like truth, myth, myth, me- metaphor, poetic language. So, so when people say, hey, Darren, do you interpret the Bible literally? I'm like, no, God is not a rock. It's metaphor. I can't interpret Psalms like, oh, is God literally a rock? No, he's not the rock. <laughs> he's like a strength for me. He's a refuge. When I'm feeling really weak, he is, my, he's not, he, he strengthens me. He expands my life. That's, nothing can separate you from the love of God, height or depth or anything created on earth. If you start saying, well, well, he, the, what's literally said, it's, what's not said is sin and all these things separating us. What Paul is doing is creating metaphor language to, to talk about a deeper truth. Are you with me? Okay, so that, so what is it? Imagine if a pastor is trying to literally apply this in the literal sense, it doesn't help. So what do we do with verses like Deuteronomy 21? Some of you say it. Oh, it's the Old Testament. Oh, it's so old, like we're under some old covenant and that's just how God was. You know what that does to Christianity? It makes Jesus look like, hey, I'm here to cheer up God and God's an, a grumpy old guy who's pissed off at the world. And that's, that's just horrible. It's like multiple personality. Like God is grumpy and gonna smite people over here and then Jesus comes and says, cheer up, Charlie. We got some good things to do in this world. That's not helpful. But that's what we do, right? Just, um, and then, then, you know what else that does? It's just, we can pick and choose the, the passages of scripture that will apply translocally over the world, over the church. So let me just talk about this for a second. Um, uh, Deuteronomy 21 is dealing with a code of conduct in the ancient Near Eastern co- cultures. When you would go into war and when you won that war, anything that you didn't kill of your enemy, you took as spoils of war. And so, in other words, if you didn't kill the donkey, you could take the donkey as your donkey. And in the same way, if you killed a man and his wife was there, in, for, in ancient Near Eastern context, you would take that person and she would be property, a sex slave in the ancient Near Eastern context. So you literally treat the donkey the same way you would treat that person in the ancient Near Eastern context. They were slaves. They were conquered people. And so what you need to see, and this is a, a very intentional, you have to understand, this is a diagram that I took from um, seminary. I didn't go to seminary. I took it from a theologian, and it's really hard and very complicated to understand. So just stay with me. The stick figure on the right, 
um, is ancient Near Eastern context. Uh, so 3,500 years ago when this was written. And they look at the passage of Deuteronomy 21 in the center. So this is the passage. And in that context, you treated people as slaves. You treated people, so you, 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 took, you treated them as property. And when you read 21 in context, what you see is they're not slaves, they're human. They have to grieve, let them mourn. You can't just sell them off. You have to physically divorce them because they're human beings. Is that a giant leap forward in that context? Yes. Slavery is different than being treated as a human and you have the right to do what you want to do. Deuteronomy 21 is progressive and pulling ancient Near Eastern culture forward. And then we read it over here in 2016 and we look at Deuteronomy 21 and we say, gosh, that's archaic. Archaic. That's barbaric because we're looking at the scripture and we're missing the context and not seeing that Deuteronomy 21 is actually progressive, subversive, and redemptive in context. Are you with me? So when we read the scripture, we need to apply this. We need to recognize that God created the world to live in perfect harmony and perfect relationship. But as sin entered into the world, it was destroyed. But the story of the Bible is what we need to keep in mind as we interpret that this story starts in Genesis 1 and 2. Everything is good and in its right and perfect place, perfect relationship, perfect intimacy with the creator, with each other and all creation. And then sin comes into the world and the story is God redeeming, reconciling and restoring all things back to its original intention. And it ends in Revelation 21 and 22, the end of the Bible, where it's everything being restored. Heaven comes to earth. And when you read Genesis, uh, Revelation 21 and two, 22, it looks an awful lot like Genesis 1 and 2. And so there's four chapters in the Bible that don't have sin in it. Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22. And what you have is this, this very similar shared story. And this, this story is about God redeeming all things back to itself. So that is the story of the scripture, that it's going somewhere. It's pointing us to the new creation. So we have to read the scripture in context of where it is when it was written. So you read Deuteronomy and you see it's progressive for culture. It's pulling that culture forward. It's one step this way towards new creation. Are you with me? So a couple more examples of this. Exodus chapter 20, the 10 commandments. We've all heard this before. Exodus, thou shall not commit murder. You shall not murder. Would you agree if we were forming a society that this is a really good rule to have? Yes, of course. Let's not kill each other. Okay, we can start there. Now, if we started to define the success of our community and why we exist by that rule, do you think that's helpful? But in a society and context where it was totally normal to kill each other, would you, do you see this as one step in the right direction? But look at the continuum within the Bible. We read that in Exodus, and then you get to John, chapter 15, verse 13, and Jesus says, hey, greater love has no one than this, to lay, one, lay down one, one's life for one's friend. It goes from defining, defining how we're gonna interact with one another through don't kill each other to lay down your life for one another. Is that a redemptive movement? Do you see, don't kill each other, lay down your lives. This is where God is taking the new creation. I'll do one more, and it starts back in Exodus 20, verse 14, don't, don't commit adultery. So, hey, if we're gonna have healthy relationships, let's not cheat on each other's spouses. Now, anyone married here? 
or if you're not married, let me give you some advice real quick. Don't define the success of your marriage on this commandment, okay? If you say, honey, it's gonna be great. We're gonna have a great life. I'm not gonna cheat on you. That's not gonna work for the life and vibrant community relationship that God calls you into, but that's a good start for a new community being formed. Let's not cheat. Let's not, like creating a sense of purity among marriage that's defined by the boundary so that when you step out of the boundary, you know you're not playing in the game, but the boundary is there to keep you in the game. So it's a step forward. But then you get all the way to Ephesians and it's Jesus has come, he's resurrected. Paul goes off into the world and he's writing to the church and he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. He gave himself up for her, making her dazzling, sparkling in white, cleansing her with the word um, uh, so that she has, she's radiant without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless in the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. It goes from don't commit adultery to this New Testament teaching. Husbands, love your wives. Is that a progressive, subversive, dynamic movement, redemptive movement forward? Yeah. So this is how we read the text in view of what God's doing. Where does this fit in the continuum? Is it pulling culture into a greater uh, story? Because when you read the Sermon on the Mount, this is what's so fascinating to me, by the way. We've advanced in every field as a society since the Bible was formed 2,000 years ago. We'll just say since it was canonized, right? In the last 1,700 years, we have grown in technology advancement, healthcare, education, science. I mean, we landed on the moon, um, transportation. You can name it, economic uh, care for one another. There are so many advancements. Would you agree that we've just advanced, we've moved in many ways towards greater health and life? I mean, they're in in some ways opposite, but uh, would you agree with that? Okay, the most the, the central teaching in where the Western society has developed most of their laws comes from Jesus' moral teachings. You know this? Like literally 2,000 years later, we are still looking at the teachings of Jesus, specifically the Sermon on the Mount, as the epitome of moral compass for all of society and culture. You, we haven't advanced, in other words, on the moral teachings of Jesus. They are still the central goal and line for how society should work. Like, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Um, all the teachings about cheating are like all these things that he does. It's ser- still so redemptive. We're here in 2016 going, gosh, imagine if we could live out the moral teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Do you see how it's just pulling us into a better future? Um, okay, I, I'm so glad I'm teaching this. You guys are getting it. Now, um, the whole point of this is how we confront the culture and how we interact in the culture. So now that you see this, hopefully this gives you a perspective, a way of, of seeing the world and seeing the scripture in a way that would be helpful. Because now when people say, well, well, um, you know, I don't, I don't, you know, the Bible, it's just barbaric and archaic and, and misogynistic. You could just say, yeah, it totally is, yeah. But let me tell you something. The Bible is progressive. It's redemptive. It's subversive. It's rooted in historical realities, but it, it is pulling society and culture into a greater future. Let me tell you about context and let me show you where this whole story is going because it's going to this new creation and we're just one click to the left and we're trying to bring more and more people this way because when I talk about the Bible, I talk about it as living. I talk about it as life-giving. I talk about nourishing. I talk about it as this word that brings life, not something that we see stuck behind the times or barbaric because there's something else going on. Are you with me? I got, I got three of us in here. Um, 
Genesis 12, I appreciate the hallelujahs. Genesis 12, it's like caffeine to my weary, tired soul right now. Uh, go to Genesis 12. I'm gonna talk about tribes and political parties real quick. How do we navigate this world we're in right now? Consumerism, the political climate is as hostile as it's ever been. Um, and it's, it's, it's like the greatest theater on earth right now. And personalities are clearly driving the, the move of, of what we're voting for. And I've heard the arguments for voting personality, voting part, political party, voting um, uh, strategy so that we can get X people you know, into the Supreme Court. I've heard uh, policy, voting for policies. I've, I've heard tradition families. I feel like most of our generation is getting our information about politics from Facebook memes, which is really frustrating, or SNL skits, which are hilarious, but really frustrating. <laughs> Genesis 12 says this. I just wanna frame it. Now, we're talking about the, the oldest, one of the older books in the Bible, Genesis 12, the first book of the Bible. We're talking ancient context here. Okay, the Lord, verse one of chapter 12. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And right there, I mean, let's just, I'm just gonna stay into the historical piece. So this is earliest civilization stuff going on. And the earliest civilization civilizations organized themselves in tribes, okay? Tribes were social divisions in a traditional society consisting of families or communities that, that were linked together through economic, religious, or blood ties with a common culture, language, and typically they had a shared, um, recognized leader. Now, what anthropologists discovered is biological connections were actually formed and emerged out of um, the need for one to defend themselves. So people formed tribes and biological connections were formed to defend each other. So families and communities were formed simply to survive the harsh environments that they lived in from the world around them and the other tribes that would attack them. So tribes really were formed as a way of saying, I've got your back, you've got my back. So tribes rallied together, they shared relationships, common stories and purpose and work common love, common practices, common belief systems, common religion. They raised children together. All this was forged out of the need for mission, survival, preserve the tribe, preserve life. But something developed over time and it's what we call tribal consciousness. Tribal consciousness. Now I'm talking about ancient civilizations. I need to remind you of this. And it's simply loyalty to the tribe, that we have to be loyal to the affiliation of tribe. Tribal affiliation was everything in the ancient Near Eastern East, Near Eastern contexts and cultures. You didn't engage with other tribes. You warred against other tribes. You didn't protect, you didn't honor other tribes. You protected yourselves from other tribes because other tribes, they talk differently than you. They had different practices. They dressed differently. They had different languages. They had different value system and customs. They shared different belief systems. They celebrated different festivals and they partied differently. They had different leaders that they celebrated. They voted differently. They made different policies and stuff like that. You would never interact with the other tribe except when you were trying to fight or oppose the other tribe. And when you oppose them, it was about your survival and their end. I'm just talking about ancient civilization again. In primitive cultures and societies, it was all about survival. It was all about preserving your tribe, which meant preserving your way of life, which meant your tribe has to win. Again, ancient civilization. We're clearly more sophisticated than this. 
I mean, because why would we organize our lives around our values, our belief systems, our stuff, our survival, our preservation of what is good? Why would we think our way is best, our little family, our little tribe? That's not something that we did. But in that ancient, con- that's not something that we do, but that's what they did back then. And back then, God acts in human history. Genesis 12, let's read this one more time together. Verse two, he says this to Abraham. He says, I will make, in view of this context, in view of tribal affiliation being everything. Your tribe has to win. This is what God says. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. And I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And pause right there. That's where we stop, don't we? This is the American way of life, the way of empire, that we are God's chosen nation. We're blessed. And I am so sick of this word being attached to material possessions. Because if you read blessing in context of the Sermon on the Mount, you don't want that blessing. You don't want to be poor in spirit. You don't want to have, it's basically saying spiritually dumb. Like no spiritual bone in the body. They're living their life completely lost, but God's close to them. You don't want to be righteous, hunger, hungry for justice. That means you're suffering injustice. You don't want to be a peacemaker because what happens when you make peace between two parties? You become the bad guy. Anytime you do this, you try to sit two friends down. Somehow it's your fault for making peace. Anyways, also, our hashtag so blessed, like Chance the Rapper says it. I know the difference in blessings and worldly possessions. Listen to Chance the Rapper. Can I get an amen? I'm I'm just singing it now in my head. I need to go back to my notes. this is what we, America's blessed. I want to be blessed. I want to be, blessed. and we think of it as our stuff and we think about all that God does. But, but the point of blessing in this ancient primitive document is the next verse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Think about tribal consciousness, tribes existing to preserve their way of life. God says God's chosen tribe, God's chosen family will exist in a revolutionary way. They will exist to be a blessing to the rest of the tribes of the world. This tribe will bless all other tribes through its existence. We will organize a new society so that when you experience wealth, prosperity, worldly possessions, resources, land resources, all that stuff that you have, that you've, been, that you've received, that you've been given, this, the point of all of it is so that it goes into those places where the blessing isn't, however you define blessing. The point of all of it is that it will flow naturally to the rest of the earth so that all the other tribes, all the other parties, all the other political associations, all the other churches, all the, all the other people around the world will experience through God's chosen family what he intended for them to experience when they were born. Found in Genesis 1 and 2. So we read a passage like Genesis 12. And in context, it is so revolutionary. Tribal context, it is drastically pulling culture forward. But then we read it and we apply context to our political situation. We apply it to our ways of making policies. Are you voting for the people that are using wealth, righteousness, and prosperity to make sure that those that don't have, have enough? Are you organizing your life and resources in a way that you see everything is a gift and everything needs to be steward and stewardship for you is to make sure that those in your life that you have access to, the relationships that you have access to, the stuff that you have access to is seen as it's all God's anyway. So who, who needs some of the stuff that I have? Are you living a Genesis 12, which is such an old book out in 2016? 
Is it a redemptive movement forward into a better future? Is this still the ideal? Yes, that we become the kinds of people that take Genesis 12 and realize in context, this was so revolutionary. In our context, this ancient document that at times, like Deuteronomy 21, it seems barbaric, it seems archaic, it seems misogynistic, but then there are at times that you see this massive leap forward into the new creation. So what do we do? Read the Bible. Study the Bible. Learn to live your life through the context of scriptures. I can't tell you how many people in my life would love to hear God speak to them and they don't open up the scriptures. He's always speaking. You're just not listening. I think as we look towards the future about where we're going, as we talk about politics, as we talk about power, um, as we talk about interacting with life, let us apply this lens of scripture into our life so that we can navigate these, this culture in a way that's rooted and grounded in historical realities, but pulling culture. Because what I love is people are full of despair and their word. Do you know how many governments and political leaders in the scriptures are just toppled over that, that we have record of? I mean, living gods were completely demolished by our Yahweh, our one true God. Like the only reason you know about Pontius Pilate is because of Jesus. And Pontius Pilate represented the largest empire in all the world at that time. But he's a, he's a freaking footnote, excuse me, in the story of Jesus. <laughs> so, brothers and sisters, will you become obsessed with the word of God? As culture bends us towards fo- self-focus and narcissism and consumerism and materialism and busyness and exhaustion and disconnected relationships and so on, we need to become people who read and study and know the word of God. And who could deny the Bible's impact on some of the most courageous people of our time? Martin Luther King Jr. said that the Bible was inspirational for him to uh, end racism and violence through peaceful, peaceful protests. He, sa- he says that the Sermon on the Mount was his inspiration for the civil rights movement and his concept of creative suffering, enduring by activists who withstood persecution and police brutality came from his knowledge of Jesus' own trials and tribulations. And in the climax of of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s most famous words, he mirrored the promises of the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. I have a dream, he said. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted and every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain and the crooked places will be made straight. The racists of Martin Luther King Jr.'s day didn't even know that scripture hit them in the face. And it was the ideas of the Bible, the ideas that God is after the justice of the downtrodden and that those that are filled with uh, injustice, he wants to bring liberation. That those people who suffer the most, there's a reason why the Bible and Jesus is called good news. And brothers and sisters, the simple point today is to read the good news. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about The Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.
Well, 